Helen Donahoe is an unusual lady, as someone who has been at the forefront of driving social change and author of various books, including a successful novel. You'd expect her to be passionate, intelligent and driven, and she certainly doesn't disappoint. Helen is a Londoner of Irish-Scottish parentage who studied politics and government in Manchester Uni and LSE. She recently completed an MA in Creative Writing at City University London, following which her debut novel, Birdie Flynn, was published. Helen has 20 years' experience speaking up for the powerless and invisible as an campaigner, lobbyist, volunteer and writer. In her last role as Director of Public Policy at Action for Children, she led the successful campaign to establish emotional child neglect in criminal law. She is also a highly experienced speaker and media spokesperson with frequent appearances across all major media outlets. In this wide-ranging interview, we dig deep into Helen's work and her wonderful book, Birdie Flynn, which tells the story of a young girl growing up in the early 80s and her struggle to find a place in the world within internal confusion of her sexuality, external family conflict against the tough socio-political backdrop. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is Your London Legacy. So here we are today in another glorious day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what the weather is going to be today, but it's bright blue skies, gorgeous sunny day. I think we're going to hit 30 degrees today. And here wow. I am today with Helen Don- Donahoe. 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 Yes. I wasn't sure if it was Donahoe or Donahue. Angl- Anglicised version. My father was of the his grandparents came over from Ireland, uh, took the soup, as the term, the slightly offensive term is, during the Irish famine. And they went across to um, the west of Scotland. And the, one of the conditions of being given food, literally soup, was to denounce your Catholicism and anglicise names. Okay, so there's an expression I'm not familiar with, take the soup. What yeah, is, what does that mean? well, it's, it's, it came from uh, the Irish famine. So there was massive, over a million people that immigrated sure. from Ireland during the famine. Uh-huh. And those that came over to, uh, those that went to the north or came over to the UK mainland, often, not always, but often were told they needed to denounce their Catholicism, their Irish roots, because they were adopted by Protestant communities, sure. um, in order to be fed. So they took the soup. And so in, back in Ireland, there's a kind of, amongst some people with long memories, a kind of a belief that they let themselves down. These people, they surrendered too easily. And that's interesting. Does that still stay sort of in the the psyche of um, Irish folk? More in the north. Yeah. Um, I, I I'd never heard the term. My father, my father's an atheist, passionately atheist, because he was brought up in a very Presbyterian West of Scotland family. Very orange. His his brothers went on lots of marches. Mm-hmm. He, they every year they'd go out to July the twelfth uh, marches in in Belfast. And yet he has an Irish name and Irish ancestors. And he married my mother, who's an Irish Roman Catholic. And a lot of that's reflected in the book, actually. That yes. kind of sectarianism yeah. that um, if you grow up in Eng- most parts of England historically, it, it, you would have experienced it in Liverpool, Leeds, big cities, wherever there were kind of Irish immigrants. But most most parts of England, you won't be familiar with the sectarian tensions. Mm apart from on the TV and Northern Ireland. Mm. So it was only when I went to Northern Ireland that um, a colleague said to me, all right, you took the soup. Your your father took the soup. uh, In a derogatory way. In a derogatory way, yeah. Well, said with a kind of tongue-in-cheek. But when I said to my dad, have you ever heard of the term took the soup? He was like, she, you know, she wasn't being nice. Because it is, if you think about the concept of, of surrendering your soul to be fed, you know, you're, you're you're an economic refugee i mean it happens it still happens now people well, come to this say, country they're, they're expected to you know normalize um into this into yeah. what we expect of, of sure. people's values so. well i mean yeah those who come into the country who live and brought up in the country are yeah. still having to go to soup kitchens and get handouts even today which is another yeah, yeah, yeah. another story so it's helen donahoe mm-hmm. okay yeah. so you're more recently known as an author of a, a good you know very well-selling book and well and um recently published book called birdie flynn which came out last year i believe it, it was in october yeah. last uh, year march, or march last year, march last yeah. year. so we'll, i want to talk about that prior to that you were director for public policy at action for children which ironically i don't know if you're watching television this morning no, I, I heard think, them on the radio this morning uh, yeah, yeah i don't know was it the current director of um was on talking about uh, literally last friday was her last if she was the acting chief ah, exec okay. um and last friday was her last day yeah. and they've got a fantastic new director in now who's the former head of girl guides movement okay she's a fantastic working class woman and if you ever listen to desert island Dish, listen to hers it's really okay (laughs) well she's very inspiring so Uh they're going to go from strength to strength but yeah they're on this morning talking about carers child carers particularly child carers massive issue and again you know some influences around the work i did be young carers Mm. in in birdie flynn 
just the vulnerability, you know, incredibly vulnerable children mm. who have to give up huge parts of their childhood. So, I mean, we hear about this, but very seldom see it. I mean, I don't, I don't come across it a lot. But how many kids would you say are there? I mean, I think the child on the radio this morning was 12 or 13 years old looking after two younger siblings yeah. and a mother who was disabled yeah. or had the hip surgery, couldn't yeah. move or something. How many kids are there in this country who are carers to their parents and siblings? Well, it's hard. To, it's, it's very hard to pin down numbers, but mm. you're talking tens and tens of thousands Seriously. of children. Yeah. Um, and and they, it, it varies from, I mean, I my father, as I was growing up, my father's an, an alcoholic. So, you know, it, the there were elements of being a young carer for me in terms of keeping the family kind of ticking along. So that's the kind of lighter end of the scale, right through to young people who have parents with profound disabilities, mental health problems, mm-hmm. dependencies, plus siblings, um, children that are in charge of medications and and feeding children and shopping and paying bills. The irony of children being in charge of handing out medication. Yeah. It's just and, and the pressure they're under. And of all the vulnerable, um, disadvantaged children and young people I worked with, actually, my children. And I didn't work on the front line. I was based in London, and, but, but did visit lots of the services. Um, the ones that broke my heart most were the young carers. Young people in poverty, young people with dis- uh, uh, disabilities, young people that have been um, in, in the care system, all got profound needs. But there was something about the young carers, that their sense of responsibility, their sense of just grown up too quickly and the weight of the world on them because they're worried about their parents. You know, it's one thing having no parents. I mean, it's a tragedy, but they're just the, the look in their eyes when you kind of talk to them about their lives and they, and they didn't want it to be any different because they didn't want to be taken away from their parents. They didn't want anyone else looking after their parents, you know. It's like when you have children, it's that kind of, ah, oh, that kind of weight of worry and love and everything but reversed on a a young child's shoulders it's desperately difficult and it's just i mean the government response at the time when i worked in in the field was shocking the mess we're in now politically just these young people have got there isn't even a champion in government kind of speaking up for them so well you certainly don't hear anything of it very very seldom do you hear anything Um, it's tragic not and certainly not specifically the child carers you don't hear anything about No. no idea what sort of level of support they get and the funding that they they get they don't have anything specifically there's not it's not it's not recognized specifically and even some schools you know don't we produced it we actually for children produced information for the young people to take into school to explain why they haven't done their homework why they haven't got clean uniform um some of the fundamental why they haven't got lunch repeatedly um some of the fundamental things we take for granted they're having to look after mum mum's not able to do you know the stuff that most mums would would do second nature so we produced a pack for them to take in to explain to their teachers the nature of being a young carer but even you know even then lots of them got knocked back you know just just a there's an absolute lack of understanding of because it's just hidden like poverty it's hidden you don't see it you don't, and people don't want to see it so yeah it's and there's no there's no statutory recognition of young carers my wife up until recently, was a teacher in a, in a, oh, right, in okay. a state school for the best part of 30 years. Yeah. Primarily, she was a, a Senko, te- you know, supporting right, okay. kids with special okay. needs and getting them integrated into the mainstream uh, education system. And she worked in a fantastic school, but she was telling me all the time she was seeing kids coming in who you know, not had breakfast, yeah. who hadn't slept, yeah. who were wearing the same clothes yeah. that they'd worn, you know, for days, maybe weeks, who were smelly and dirty. And she knew they were having serious problems at home, you know, or were looking after, you know, members of the family or possibly even suspected of being abused. By, well, that, I mean, it's another aspect. Well, completely. certainly experiencing neglect. Yeah, yeah. experiencing neglect. Yeah. You actually, um, I think you were involved with one of the things you, you um, were successful in was the campaign for a, to establish emotional child neglect as yeah. a criminal offence. Yeah. Yeah. And that, uh, rather than, um, I suppose, a civil, was it a civil offence? It just wasn't recognised in the law. It wasn't recognised at all. The, the law on child neglect was Victorian. Mm. And basically, in a nutshell, if you didn't kill your child um, or, or physically remove one of their limbs, then you were doing okay, yeah. according to Victorian law, which is you know obviously a bygone time. So yeah. we just wanted it updated to recognise, yes, there's, you know, there's elements of um, well-being that a child needs physically, but mentally as well is fundamental. Um, so if a child's being bullied by their parents, if they're going into school, they're withdrawn. Because it's very difficult to to say, yes, this is this is neglect. Physical neglect is difficult enough to see because mm. often some sometimes the signs are, are not yeah. obvious. Yeah. 
But emotional neglect is very difficult. You say a child can come in withdrawn. It can be for any number of reasons, obviously. Yeah. So to you've got to be able to have the right skill set to elicit the right answers. You do, and, and that's and and that's was very much our argument. You know, we changed the law, but the law is only as good as is when it's applied on the, on the ground. And but you know, to in order to because we had a lot of opposition to our work on that. A lot of people saying, "Oh, it's just they, it was nicknamed the Cinderella Law." The way Cinderella was treated. And actually, we worked with police officers, social workers, nurses, teachers across the board. And we were told time and time again by professionals who come into touch with, with, with children, yes, this is the right thing to do, but also campaign for more resources, you know, so that they've got the... Because the police in particular wanted this tool because they go, they go into homes where they, there may well be domestic violence going on. There may well be other issues. And they see the children are actually physically okay but they're living a life of hell. You know, they're not being... We just heard some stories that were just heartbreak, absolutely heartbreaking and would never come to the... You know, they're not the stories that come get to the six o'clock news because the child doesn't die. I was going to say, until the child is, you know, murdered or, yeah, you know... which is the ultimate extreme. Yeah. But this, these children will grow up mentally affected for the rest of, of their lives. So, I mean, have any of cases of this um, emotional neglect, were any ever brought to trial? I mean... So I think it's probably too soon. I don't know, to be honest with you. I yeah. left after that, that campaign success was kind of the, the watershed for me to just say, right, five years, we've achieved our goal. And, uh, yeah. and I think I left about three months later. Yeah. It sort of leads into one of the questions I wanted to ask you about working for a charity or an organisation like that. I mean, the amount of red tape and bureaucracy you must have come up against trying to i mean it must be like hitting your head against a brick wall trying to find the right people to, to yeah. speak to you yeah. know i don't know whether it's government ministers or governmental departments and people leaving their their office all the time and then you come up against financial restrictions it must have been well compared to now it was a bed of roses to be honest really? i think brexit oh, i can't even say the word but <laughs> that has just I, I talked to colleagues who are still working in the campaigning field and it's just there's nothing else on the table mm. you know there's no everything all government resources have been, you wouldn't think so, but government resources have been realigned to get Brexit done. And really, it, you're kind of, it's, it's a bit of a black hole for other issues. You know, the, the Action for Children story this morning, the, the piece I heard on the radio, the response from the government was, we, we, we've, we've put resources in place, full stop. You know, there just isn't an engagement to kind of get make things better until Brexit's whatever it is, is done. Well, I say whatever it is and when it, yeah. whenever it happens. Whenever it happens, yeah. if indeed it does. If it happens, what the yeah. long-term consequences are. For well, it. I mean, now at the moment, local authority. I was reading the other day, local authorities whose obligation it is to look after vulnerable children are, yeah, and, and who have been stripped of so many resources are now um, stockpiling resources to because to, they're worried about social unrest. Whether Brexit happens or whether it doesn't happen, there'll be people on the extremes that aren't happy. My oldest friend is a senior police officer in Manchester, and she said that everybody in the police has been put on alert for a summer of unrest that sees no particular end. I mean, it always it tapers off when the weather gets a bit bad, but you know they're seriously yes. worried about it all kicking off. Well, basically. they mean sort of like civil disobedience or actual rioting, yeah, riot, riot, yeah. like we had in because it's the, it's the, it's lighting the the kind of dry grass of of um, resentment. Mm. So you have got Tommy Robinson just been released yes. from jail. He's out now. He's going to be stoking up. Then you've got the kind of so-called legitimate side of that, which is Nigel Far Farage's rubbish. There's words I could use. You know, so they exist to kind of stir up, stir up, stir yeah, up. Yeah, they're stuff. agitators. And if Brexit doesn't happen, it's just going to get worse. Mm. It's not going to go away. It's not. People aren't going to go, fair enough, we tried, it didn't mm. work. You know, that, and, and it's all based around those racial tensions, the mm. kind of... And again, going back to the book, you know, I, I talk in schools about this not being anything particularly new. In the 80s, it was the Irish community that were all accused of being terrorists and then hating the British. Um, I don't think it was as extreme then, although you were much more likely to be killed by an IRA bomb than you are by a Muslim, so-called Muslim um, terrorist um, in, you know, in the current times. But yeah, it's that kind of... But I, I don't remember, other than the kind of Enoch Powell moment, which was before my time, I don't remember in the 80s, I think there was just a sense of... There was more, it, it sounds odd, but there was more of a sense of, well, I don't know, actually, now I think about it, Thatcher came in and refused to let Jerry Adams speak on TV. And we had internment and imprisonment without trial. So maybe, maybe there were... The old habeas corpus rules. Yeah, yeah, may, yeah, maybe it was. I mean, I think if you're Irish, if you're an Irish man in particular, 
with an Irish accent in, in London, in Liverpool, in Glasgow. Times are pretty tough. Mm. So let's let's talk about the. We'll come back and mm. you know, maybe touch on some of your work with um, Action for Children and some of your other sort of campaigning work. But I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of your upbringing and childhood and work you've done sort of fed into your book, Birdie Flynn. Now, it's not a book that I typically would have picked up myself because I, I don't read a lot of novels per se. I, I, I read other types of books. But when I knew I was going to come and was fortunate enough to be speaking to you and you were going to be a guest on, on uh, the podcast, I picked it up. And I read it, really, really loved it from cover to cover. You know, yeah. it's not a short book. I don't know, it's yeah. what, 370-odd pages. Yeah. I think it was described as a young adult, but it's a hard-hitting. I don't know if it's a young adult. I mean, because young adults today are very savvy and, you know, they're, they're a lot more yeah. learned. Streetwise. Streetwise, yeah. I think is the word I'm looking for. But before we even came on, you know, went live, we were talking about, mm. you know, children today with yeah. anxiety and multiple problems and multiple yeah. pressures on them. But this book shows that shines a light on all the stresses and strains even back in the because this book is set in 1982 that's right yeah and it depicts the life it's the story of birdie flynn through her eyes i think isn't it mm-hmm. and birdie flynn is a 12 year old and i think i don't want to do a spoiler but it is <laughs> on the back of the book i don't think we know i didn't appreciate if birdie was a boy or a girl yeah, until exactly. i don't know how many hundreds of pages into it's about the a third book, of the way in about a third of the way yeah. into the book and that was obviously a deliberate tactic yeah. you, you employed yeah i think there, there's always the suggestion that birdie was a girl who had some issues in her own mind you know which side of the fence she was she fell on whether she was a, a girl who would yeah. like being a boy whether yeah. you know yeah is that something that came out of your your childhood uh, you know it's interesting it, it kind of it's almost paradoxical because i think you know, we make we make generalizations about kids today have more pressures. In the eighties, we didn't we, we all ran through fields and it was all kind of carefree. And yet, there was an element of I remember from my childhood of you you were born into your situation, you got on with it, and it was work. I mean, it was a combination of things. It was gender identity as a concept didn't exist, and I was just Helen. You know, and I, I came from a big Irish family. I was good at football, so. Um, yeah, I need to have words with you yeah. about your football team. So that made me just one of the boys, really. <laughs> yeah, and I never thought I never thought anything of it, you know. And I just thought, and actually, for a time, all my because I used to hang around with lots of boys, but mainly my male cousins. You know, it was just it, it's only when kind of I guess when puberty kicks in that you just think, oh, hang on a minute, this is going in a different direction, and then the societal pressures kick in for you to conform um, more. Yes, in the eighties, I think you just were what you were, and you got on with it. There was no, I never remember any sense of choice or escape or you know from the from my social class as uh, or gender identity or anything or my family not that I wanted to escape my family but you know to the broader world whereas I think now if you're growing up my children my 11 year old daughter soon to be 12 talks about the gender identity of her classmates their sexual orientation I mean obviously this is something that they're discussing it's it will change over time but they're openly discussing their choices what they want to do with their lives where they they see their lives going, how much travel they're going to do. You know, it, and these aren't privileged kids. This is an inner city London primary school. And I guess that's a good thing rather it's than... It's a so, wonderful thing. It's an thing. amazing thing. Yeah. It's a wonderful thing, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, was, I went to TEDx London a couple of weeks ago at the Royal Festival Hall. And there was about 20-odd speakers. And a lot of them were talking about gender identity mm-hmm. and diversity. And as you say, this is now being spoken about openly, right across yeah. the social spectrum. And I think it's fantastic that yeah. kids today... But on the other hand, it does cause there are it does cause anxiety if you think you're not conforming to what you. It's not straightforward. It's not far no. from straightforward. It's not straightforward. Yeah. And actually, I go into schools and talk about the book, and I'm amazed by how many children. I have to say, generally boys. That's not a sexist point. It's actually experience. Just assume Bernie's a boy. Having read the whole book, you know, and I say, and I say to them, "What makes you think Bernie's a boy? Or oh, isn't he?" And then the rest of the class go, no, haven't you read it? <laughs> and just so that that kind of reflects just an assumption that... What age group would that be that you're talking to? 12, 13, 14. Yeah. And I, I suppose they've been brought up, you know, with that clear gender identity, self-identity that they're a boy and their parents mm. buy them the football boots and the, the yeah. blue things and yeah. the girls have got the yeah. pink and the fairy yeah. stuff. Then they're only ever going to assume that... that Bernice, Bernice, Bernice yeah. we don't know her name until later yeah. on in the book, is a boy because, you know, she runs around, she plays with the boys, she gets into fights and scrapes. And, yeah. and, and the first chapter, I think, embeds very quickly that, I mean, I, and I wrote it deliberately 
in a kind of harsh way. And a lot of children I've spoken to have had a go at me about that. You're talking about the brutality, the brutality of, of, of the, the scene where the cat the opening scene comes to a. So I think we could talk about it because it's nasty end. It, yeah, it, yeah. It's the uh, the reveal is on the yeah. on, in the back, isn't it? On the, yeah. on the, the, the resume of the book. So the the, the opening scene, if I'm not mistaken is is birdie who mm-hmm. we don't know at this stage is a girl or a mm. boy is playing with her male young she's 12 playing with yeah. her male friends down by the canal is it a canal uh, or the like, river? A brook. like a brook yeah and they're basically taunting uh and torturing i suppose yeah. a cat and the cat is belongs to it was her nan's birdie's nan's yeah. cat yeah cool and the cat was called murphy, murphy. yeah so he got the irish <laughs> yeah we got a metaphor there which i talked to children about as well yeah and the kids She's watching while her friends are basically bullying and torturing yeah. this cat and kicking it from here to kingdom come. And I suppose she does what not every child would have done. She has compassion for the cat and puts it out of its misery. I won't, I won't spoil how she does it, but she basically, she realizes the cat's not going to survive and puts it out of its misery. I think that's... That's right, yeah. And that is her secret that yeah. she takes through the whole book. I think yeah. all members of her family or most of the characters in the book have their own secret, which unravel as we go through the book, which is fantastic. But this is her secret as a young child. She's got a number of secrets. A is her sexuality, whether she's a boy or a girl and what she wants to be. But she's also got this secret that she can't tell and she keeps yeah. it in. Keeps it in, And it's brutally told, but it's very it's told very honestly, but it's from the child's point of view. This is her, this is what she sees. And some of the reviews I read on the book couldn't handle that. And I thought that was yeah. quite, and this is adults reviewing yeah. the book. Yeah. And some of them said, oh, no, very no. interesting. Yeah. yeah. No, I can't, I can't, you know, it's a cat. I love cats. And yeah. What does that mean? You can't. Well, it's interesting. My friend is a um, producer for Radio 4. She produces their kind of plays. And um, she said, one of the things that they always tell writers is do not kill any animals because it, it just will not be broadcast. They just won't go there. They can kill a child. Yeah. <laughs> but don't kill an animal because... Radio 4 listeners would just be up in arms and oh, never hear the end sake. of it. I have to say, once I didn't have a pet dog when I wrote that. Now I have. I can understand where people are coming from. Lovely little Yorkie who's yeah, sound asleep was yapping away yeah. when I got here. Bonnie, What's her name yeah. again? Bonnie. Bonnie, Bonnie. Yeah. yeah. Say that quietly. Sure. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I have found the, review, the people that just were put off by that. I just think, you know, there's so much more. There's so much more brutal stuff that's written about in novels. And that's the very nature of a novel is to challenge and bring into people's sight stuff that is unpalatable and you don't want to know happens. You know, I mean, the history of literature is about dreadful things happening. But I think it's interesting that it happened to an animal and people just thought that was, you know, you just don't go there. And for heaven's sake, I mean, it's actually, you talk about it on the back of the book. You not, it shouldn't be a surprise. It shouldn't be a total surprise. I mean, maybe the language that's used, yeah. which is very, you know, very yeah. hard hitting. But, yeah. you know, we, we know what's going to happen from yeah. the opening scene. You don't know how it's going to unfold. But uh, It's interesting you picked up on the young adult thing because I had a lots of discussions with, I had a number of editors in the time I wrote it, and they were all coming from different perspectives, really. I'm often asked, what, what makes a young adult book a young adult book, as opposed to, you know, just general fiction? Because when To Kill a Mockingbird was written about a young person that wasn't considered a young adult you know um, Tom Sawyer was not put in young adult specific bracket so it's it's a marketing term basically young adult it's kind of it's, it's the one area where there's a growth in published um, paperback fiction so that's the, the, the label that's put on it what would set young adult apart from general fiction I'm told is a sense of hope you have to have resolution young people want young people can t- can read pretty brutal stuff I mean I we can come on to the stuff about terrorism. When when I was advised the level of detail to put in that, I was surprised. I thought, my God, is this okay for children to read about this? This is scary stuff, even scarier now. But they said, no, no, no. They they can take tough, you know, they experience tough thoughts and and experiences as young adults. They want to process these this thinking and their fears. And the way to do that is to make a character's life tough. But it, there has to be hope. There has to be resolution. You know, some book, adult books you read can be overwhelmingly depressing. You know, and I'm, I, I read, the novels I read tend to be around social realism. <sighs> you know, and I'm going to stop reading them because it's too much. <laughs> yeah. It's just too much at yeah. the moment. There's too much going on in the world. But that's what, so that's the kind of the editorial kind of discussions I had was around, okay, use the, because I wanted it to reflect, reflect the brutality of 1982. You know, IRA bombs, horses being murdered. Yeah, yeah nail bombs. Well, yeah, rip, dreadful stuff yeah. um, and a horrible kind of right-wing government, uh, you know, crushing miners and, and destroying jobs. 
so many parallels to today. Mm, yeah. Um, and so the first chapter was very much a kind of, I, I, I was taught to, this is a kind of technique. I can't remember who taught this. I listened to lots of novelists speak, but one of the techniques I was taught was in the first paragraph, you should be up in the first word, in the first sentence, in the first paragraph, in the first chapter, you should be able to sort of see it as a microcosm, as a representation of the whole book. And then it gets, it throws your reader right into the, right, I know what this book's about. And then you kind of open it up. So that I deliberately wanted the first, even the first sentence. I can't remember what it says. I'm not a murderer. I don't recall what the first word was. I'm not vicious. I'm not vicious. I'm not vicious. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't my idea the whole cat murder? Yeah, yeah. So the very, so first, very first sentence, first sentence, first yeah. couple of words. Yeah, you're getting into the the psyche of the, mm. the main character. I am not vicious. I'm not vicious. No. Yeah, and then kicking a cat half to death is wrong. So you're getting the moral. So you know it's going to be violent. You know she's going to be troubled by yeah. this. Yeah, but you, yeah, you, and you, you and you've got that. Is it right? Is it wrong? You know, I'm, am I right? Am I wrong? That yeah. kind of um, yeah. straight away. So that's that was the basis of that chapter. I mean, because this is written through her eyes as a twelve year old. Did you was that how did you find writing because you're not writing as a 12 year old specifically mm. I mean that that would be very difficult for a reader to to do that but it is in a less adult sort of language yeah I mean you're writing it sort of a bit childlike you know proper disturbed behavior yeah you know she, yeah colloquialism yeah, yeah colloquialism yeah. As, as if you were sort of well, that was really important to me uh, mm. and, and this is an interesting point actually because there's two things I think I was naturally drawn to writing that voice because I was intimidated by having to write more literary you know I've, I've I was awful at English at school and this is why it's taken me so long to write a book very unconfident in the written word and and technology helps now as, as I've said many times from a working class background we had no books uh, my dad used to my dad got the Sunday post sent down from Scotland every Sunday um that was our reading material so I have a very limited vocabulary when you're writing you have the you have the opportunity to use thesauruses, but you know you don't have that when you're when you're necessarily speaking. And I was intimidated by amazing writing that I read that I think I could never do that. So I thought, well, unconsciously I was drawn towards writing as a twelve year old because it would be easier. Uh, you know, I could I could do that limited vocabulary stuff. But also I wanted I was sick to death of reading constantly twelve year old voices or young voices that were splendidly articulate you know as if the 12 year old had been to cambridge and done an english literature degree you know and i just thought that's just not real even though even in privileged childhood there's there's a childlike voice that i just don't see represented increasingly yes because there's more young adult fiction and i actually got in a number of just quite odd discussions with one particular editor who said to me do people talk like this does anyone really talk like this? It's like, you need to get out of Dulwich yeah. yes. and get out into the real world because, yeah. yes, they do. And and again, it comes back to action for children. You know, the young people I met, their language is completely different to anything we see in the mainstream. I mean, you might see a bit of on telly what my kids watch, but not really. Even then, it's kind of, it's toned down. And I've toned down a lot of her language, you know, because, and some of the Irish colloquialisms, people, some some readers said to me, before it was published, people were kind of critically reading it before it was published. Will people be able to understand this? Why do you, what do you want everything written in? You know, yes. kind of the purest English language uh-huh. and the most articulate, flowery prose. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it was shocking, the lack of appreciation of a diverse voice. So it just made me more determined to... Well, I, I found it totally representative of a child of, of yeah. her age yeah. and in that era, in that age, being a, a child, I suppose, I mean, I... Uh, 1982 I was uh, off to university but the 80s resonates with me I mean some of the references you've got you know to Dex's Midnight Runners yes. and yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, our prize I mean we used to dance the Dex's at um, <laughs> yeah. Come On Eileen at university and then uh, our prize I, I worked at our prize at a weekend job and all our these sort of vouchers, things. Our yeah, prize yeah. vouchers yeah, good yeah. god yeah so I mean some of the references are just are just splendid and it, I mean children of today it won't mean anything to them but mm. it doesn't have to the characters can resonate with the children today quite comfortably and i yeah. don't know what the feedback is you get from children today who've re- read the book in terms of some of the um 80s references the cultural references when when i um talk to young groups of young people i talk about cultural references and i said okay if you were writing a book about if, say in 20 years time you decide to write a book and you set it in 2018 2017 what cultural references would you 
put in there. And they fly off the handle. They're like, oh, um, iTunes and Apple Watch and, you know. Mm. And I can imagine it's kind of a lot of it's dig- digital social media based. And then I, then I say, okay, so I wrote a book about when I was your age and I've, it's full of cultural references from when I was. And I say, can you remember any of them? And they do. The cassette and Rubik. I don't think Rubik's Cube's in there. It's too cliche. But, you know, they do remember. the, um, And they know... Children are much brighter than we give them credit for. They know that it's a reference. They might have to Google it, but, they, you know, they know it's a reference to a bygone time. Um, same as if they read historical fiction, you know, it's 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 just a, it's a thing. So, yeah, they get it. They get it. So how much of the, the, the storyline, the, the plot lines in here, were from your own personal knowledge and upbringing? Because obviously you've got this um, this issue, that the, the gender identity thing with, yeah. with uh, Bernice, Birdie. You've got the issue of her school teacher taking sexual advantage of her. You've got you know, the bullying going on. You've got all these sort of issues. You've got her her mother who holds down, I think, a couple of night jobs as well. And her father, who I think you've already alluded to, your own father, I think, you know, um, was partial to a drink or yeah, two. Yeah, um, yeah. But yet loved her to pieces in the book in their own in their own way, yes. their own challenged way. Yes. The fact that she seems to be quite a shy child and although she hangs out with the boys and gets you know into mm. fights and things like that her thoughts she has to write down in letters which she keeps and yeah or write, sends off to the i think she sends off to the telegraph yeah, she, to the te- yeah. 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 <laughs> ironically yeah so is this reflective of your upbringing in some sense it is yeah. in many ways i mean it's often said that you know people's first books are have strong elements of autobiography uh, it's based on my experience broadly as i said to you before affair the um I've bumped in when I go home to Farnborough where I grew up I often see people walking the dog who I went to school with and they've read it and they say oh, I recognize that but I recognize that bit. um and it's so it might not have been something that happened to me for example the child the abuse the sexual abuse from the teacher didn't happen to me personally but I know from stories that it was and I think probably true of many schools um it went on it was an art teacher actually at my school um and people are just talking about it now and he's actually he's departed from this world through his own actions um which yeah anyway so and i wanted again to put that in because i just i have a passion for things being highlighted that aren't talked about very often you know it does happen it does happen and it needs to be acknowledged so it's like and the big irish family obviously reflects my family my cousins all read it and they were like oh it's so and so me my cousin sean is absolutely convinced that he's liam and i'm like no you're not liam. you know you've got, you've got to let that go my my sister um read it and was convinced that she was the sister in it you know and I just think no no it's not that straightforward it's it would it would make for poor characters the these characters are all drawn from lots of different people the next door neighbor Edna um is drawn from actually Edna O'Brien it's one of my favorite writers and I just love her the Irish writer I just love her cranky husky voice now so it's a kind of combination of her and an auntie I had, Auntie Edie, who wasn't a real auntie. She was Irish, come over and, and helped my my nan when she came over. So, you know, I had the, both of them in mind when I wrote that character. So it's an amalgam. But yes, I mean, when I go home to Farnborough where I grew up, it I pass a pub and I think, and I think, um, again, one of my favourite, Colin Tabin, he talks about not being afraid to use relatives, to use pubs your dad drank in to use your, your, your auntie's house as a mental picture um he, you know because that's what you need and he says you know there's one of his books i can't remember which one but he he based it on one of his auntie's houses or whatever the, the, the actual physical layout so in my mind i had certain pubs you know when birdie goes looking for her dad that you know looking in the window and i drove past it yesterday and it's that it just makes me think yep where's that pub in this this the particular pub I'm talking about is called the Fox Inn, and it's uh-huh. in Farnborough where I grew up. All right, up. in Farnborough, okay. Yeah. So you and actually did go looking for your dad, trying to drag him home, did you? I didn't, no, no, I never did You'd that. Never but did. my mum would have done that with her dad, uh-huh. who was a, a an Irish immigrant who would work hard all day and then drink the money down the pub. Right. Not uncommon. No, no, of course um, not. So yeah, so that's that's more of a reflection of um, my mum's and auntie's stories, my uncle's stories. Mm. It's, it's a very. I mean, one of the things you said, one of the editors suggested that there has to be resolution for a, yeah. for, for ch- children who are reading, young adults who are reading. Is there resolution in this book? I mean, well, there's, there's not, hope. There's hope. Yeah. yeah. There's not. I didn't. I was, there's no way I was going to give it a sickly kind of everything. No. Everyone is happily ever after. No. And that, that and that's not what they meant actually. It's the hope. It's the kind of. It's not. It doesn't all end in absolute disaster. 
and it, yes, towards the end of the book. And it, that was quite hard to write, actually. It's one of the hardest things to write because you've got to make it real. You know, any audience will see through a kind of, right, I'm bored of writing this now. I'm going to just let Birdie walk off into the sunset, you know. And it had to be done in a Birdie way, which is, is you know, she's not suddenly going to become confident and go, do you know what? I think I'm going to, I know what I'm going to do with my life, you know. But through the confidence, through the um, the sharing of secrets with her mum, that's just that step up to a building that relationship and a level of honesty that will allow her to map out her. Mm. her so it's the sharing of secrets with her mum. I mean, the yeah. mum has a secret. We won't talk about that now because yeah. that'll spoil for anyone who wants yeah. to read it, which is a big secret from her point of view. To, to some mm. people might think, yeah, but it's, it's a major secret which she's carried through her life. Yeah. And it was something that well, I experienced, that again, experienced in childhood, not with my mother, but with a great, un- a great uncle. Sure. And then there's the other good people in her life she starts to share good mm. things with yeah uh, her sister takes her to london yeah you know for treats and things yeah. and then her friendship with this character gypsy girl yeah uh, yeah which is a uh, quite an interesting relationship that develops there yeah so there is hope that develops and progresses throughout throughout the book from all the, yeah. the horrors of the the opening chapters yeah. i found it a wonderful book i really really enjoyed it and for your first novel i think it's astonishing particularly as you say you you you've never written before I mean you've written, I've written articles and yeah. non-fiction and reports and yeah. things like that from a journalistic sort of charity point of yeah. view you know presenting information and data in a, in a, in a yeah. way that's easily digestible but writing a novel is is not easy so what, what was the process because you you went off or took yourself off to do a course to to learn about yeah, novel so writing people ask me what made me suddenly wake up one morning and want to write a book and actually I, that didn't happen I've always wanted to write I mean my dad has a very my dad had an incredibly tough childhood and often said, he didn't say to me, you should write my story. He often said, if somebody wrote my story, nobody would believe it. You know, it's it, Angela's Ashes. Did you ever read Angela's Ashes? I did, a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, remind me of the name of the author. Uh, Frank, Frank, Frank McCourt. Frank McCourt, that's yeah. it, yeah. It's a bit like that, his yeah. childhood. But <laughs> my mum says it's actually worse. So there was always, and being Irish and Scottish, there's an always there's so much importance of stories as a verbal form, you know, sitting around. And to be fair, I've heard the same stories a million times. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's stories, stories, stories. It really, it's a really unconscious way of, of just holding on to heritage and holding on to history. And and that's in a one-to-one or sitting around in a group, around the pub with the family gathering. In a group, yeah. yeah it's, it's all forms. And it's I think it's particularly true of immigrants as well, you know, and it's because most of the stories are about a reflection of, Ireland um, or Scotland. Yeah, and it's passing on your history through the generations. Exactly, exactly. And it's fascinating how it happens unconsciously. Nobody sits down and goes, you know, I must tell my children lots of stories. So that's how I was brought up. And as I say, but, but with very few books, we didn't, we didn't read stories, we, we told stories. But I always was fascinated by, by books and who wrote books. And it was a foreign country to me. I just, it, we didn't have a bookshop in our town, you know, it was just, I, I, as I, I think I said in one of my blogs, I, I picked up books from jumble sales, you know. Um, and it was, Oh God, I could just never dream of writing a story, um, and not certainly not a novel. So off I off I went to uh, study politics and became a political campaigner, and that was my way of reflecting stories. It was a way of so when I sit in front of a when I used to sit in front of politicians or go to a select committee or present a report, the most important part were the stories within it. So the, it might be in a previous job, it might be the experience of someone with disability. It might be um, a vulnerable young person. They were, that was my way of articulating the importance of people's stories. Because otherwise you were just presenting facts and, which, and, and stats, which, which is, I don't know, X number do. of people suffer from yeah. this and X yeah. number of people suffer from that, yeah. unless you put X pounds in per capita. But the stories is, is what... That's what sits in people's minds when you hear a personal story. That actual children's story, the news item this morning, they could have reeled off any number of statistics, percentages this, percentages that. It was when they get... you. A girl on called Sarah who has to look up, you know, and you in your mind you create this, create an empathy. Yeah. So that was that was the trick with politicians, and it works sometimes, not always, but <laughs> it depends on the audience. And then cut through twenty years of that work, it, when I turned forty, my mum was diagnosed with lung cancer, and my world turned upside down. Of course. She's now coming up to ten years post diagnosis. Wonderful. Thanks to the NHS, yes. Um, yes. she's fighting fit. But it's for many months it didn't look that way. So that just turned my world upside down. And my mum said to me then, um, when we didn't know what the future held, God's sake, get on and write that book. Stop putting it off. Hmm. You know, get on and write it. So it's something you've been talking about privately with your mum. Yeah, it kind of, it was a, it was an, 
open secret really that I kind of always fancied writing a book um, but life takes over so she said that to me and I had a choice I had a real kind of that was a real crossroads in my life I turned 14 I could either give up work and be a full-time carer for my mum which may have led to palliative care or keep going in this direction and take on even more challenging ambitions Mm. and I chose that way because my mum said look you're not giving up your life you've got to keep going come Mm. on you know so that made me I actually and I was profoundly unconfident about it and so I went online and did a couple of online courses that you can do in the kind of anonymity of a of a back bedroom and got some decent feedback so I thought okay and then as these things transpire I saw an ad for um, creative writing MA at City University and one evening they had an open evening and I remembered like it was yesterday I I went there straight from work and I stood on the steps and I almost didn't go in because despite a kind of career and various degrees and, you know, university education, it was still entrenched in me that this I was an imposter to this world. Nonetheless, something something made me go in and then once I got in to find the director of the MA programme, who's a guy called Jonathan Myerson, who writes for Radio 4. His wife's quite a famous um, novelist. And anyway, cut long story short, I went over and spoke to him. I said, do I have to be this? Do I have to do that? Do I, um, do I need to have read? Do, 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 do. And he said, no, 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 just apply. Please, just apply. And uh, I did and blagged my way through the interview. You had to send a piece of writing in and I blagged my way through the interview. God knows. He, he, I had to name my 10 favorite books. I hardly read 10 books. Um, so I kind of crashed. So you really hadn't done a whole lot of reading up until... No, I'd, I'd, like yourself, I'd, I'd read non-fiction, really, and biographies and memoir and political... Bio- I mean, stacks and stacks of political biographies that um, I used to bury myself in. But no, strangely not, I just didn't... And still don't, I'm still not a prolific reader. I need to read a lot more. But yeah, I didn't, wasn't particularly well read. I'm fascinated by this imposter syndrome sort mm. of scenario, which a lot of people... I guess, suffer from, you know, you're mm. not good enough, you're not successful yeah. enough, yeah. you know, you're not knowledgeable enough, or, you know, the right education, the right background, whatever. We, we have this. What is, what is this? Is this inbred in us or is this just the way we are today? I, I, I just don't, I mean, I, I guess I had it a bit when I was going to do, set up the yeah. podcast. I really genuinely thought, no, I can't do this. I hate the sound of my own mm, voice. Mm. I still do, but mm. you know, I've done a few now and I'm starting to feel my way into it. Is that how you felt? You just didn't think you were capable or you thought, I'll never make a success of this. My personal opinion, it's not scientific at all, is that it's a uniquely British thing, even more English, actually. Certainly my cousins in Ireland, they would be like, well, just give it a go, you know, what can go wrong, you know? Um, And in Scotland, there's a similar sort of less class-driven delineation of, of your ambitions. Whereas I think in this country, and less so in London, I think London's, take London out of the equation, it's a completely kind of subculture. I think in this country through, and it'll change, it will change, it's changing slowly through digital media and, and, and people's ability to learn in different ways. I just think through the education system, through the, you know, the media that we used to watch, which was profoundly white middle class, university educated, overwhelmingly Oxbridge educated, there was a sense of them and us. And I was brought up, you're working class and that's your lot, you know, be proud of it. And it's interesting, actually. Only recently have even my friends, of which mostly have similar backgrounds to me, the ones that have really stayed friends for a long time have similar backgrounds. But even them, and certainly the kind of people I met in London when I first came, they would just not allow you to identify as working class. Even you know, They'd say to me, oh, Helen, come on, get over it. You're not working class. Now I'm, I'm in touch with a number of writers. Kit Duval, has, she's a mixed race, Irish and... I think West African. I won't. I can't remember which particular West African country writer who <clears throat> has a number of novels written, and she she talks about this a lot. She was she trained as a social worker and, and did different, I think, or a nurse, did different careers before she eventually started to write. And she's she's started a dialogue online via Twitter as these things go around having the confidence to identify as I'm still working class, and it's important to, as an adult to say I'm working class because it does have all these implications for your sense of imposter Mm. syndrome and I know lots of I I read blogs and things from really established writers who still have an imposter Marion Keys I think was talking about it recently and she's published millions and millions and millions of books really popular globally books and she still doesn't think she you know she deserves to be 
um, doing what she's doing. I mean, there must so be, entrenched. There must be examples of working class authors and writers. So is the imposter syndrome from the fact that you don't think you're good enough to write, or you don't think you're good enough to write and get it published and that other people want to... Oh, it goes through every because, aspect of life. Because obviously publication, getting books published yeah. is yeah, something oh completely different oh, because I can, yeah. you know... I did a piece of work recently with a great organisation called Spread the Word. They're a London-based charity who work, who's, whose remit is to get more disadvantaged people into the writing. Okay, I'll have to um, get, speak to them on the podcast, yeah, I think. Do, do. Yeah, do, do. Actually do, because they've just launched, um, it's, it's closed now, but they um, have launched an award, London Writers Awards, and it's specifically targeted at um, people from ethnic minority groups, LGBT, dis- disabled Londoners, and people with mental health problems, I think. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and I'm a facilitator for one of the groups of award winners later this year to kind of work with them on oh i did see that and going into schools and facilitating that's that's different but this particular award that what what they'll do is they'll pick a group of i think there's different categories and for the young adult category i'll be supporting a group of um, winners to build a peer-to-peer support group but it's a great and and one of too few um actual awards book writing awards specifically targeted at those that aren't in the, the mainstream writing oh, world. A fantastic idea. So what was your pro... I mean, was Birdie a character you had in mind for for many years or was it just something that formulated as you started to get the idea in your well, head? Well, no, I didn't have her in my mind. I mean, I, I I love characters that, you know, if I think about the characters I liked growing up, Marmalade Atkins and the kind of ones that are just a little bit, not not naughty, but kind of just aren't the, aren't the, the mainstream. Tom Sawyer, you mm, know, I loved yeah. all that. And when I started the course, so I haven't gone through all that kind of blagging, my, one of my tutors was a woman called Lucy Caldwell, who was a brilliant Irish writer. And we did a lot of, I think the first year was mainly kind of learning how, learning the craft. And then we started to work on characters. And one particular scene I wrote as a, as a kind of an assignment, Birdie appeared in it. And she said to me, Henry, this is, this is a voice that's coming through. You need to work on this. This is, I like this. Channel Birdie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I can't remember whether where the nickname Birdie came from. Anyway, you know, these things just come to you. It's and weird, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah, she said, right, let's, I like this. Let's work with this. And so then I started to channel Birdie through all my assignments and her, her world just built. So was it always the intention to come out with a novel at the end of the... the yeah, that's the brilliant the, thing about this MA is that actually you don't just come out with, you know, a toolbox of, of skills. You come out with a final manuscript. Oh, fantastic. That's the two years... That's the output at the end. So this book here is, is the output of your of your the fir- was it MA I think yeah the MA book MA writing. creative writing yeah, yeah. Um, the the uh, first draft was yeah I mean I I I often get children to guess how many times I had to rewrite eighty thousand words and I rewrote it about twenty times edited you know so that that was actually published a year after the MA finished but that it was the MA that gave me the the route. Did the story change, or was the plot broadly the same from um, draft one through to... You, you tend to take stuff out rather than change stuff. Yes, less is more. Yeah, which you wouldn't believe looking at how thick it is, but yeah. the next one will be much shorter. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a big book, but it, I mean, it, it reads easily, and it doesn't feel like a long book. It's yeah. certainly not a heavy book to read, because it's, it, it, it's a story, as you say, which yeah. makes it all the more enjoyable to read. So what, what are, you, are you working on another book now? I'm trying to. I'm trying to. It's, I've found it... Again, you know, it's kind of the brilliant thing about the MA was you were tutored through the process. Right. And it was a brutal process at times, you know, because you are, you're laying. I remember the first time I had to read out something I'd done, or the first time I had to hand in some mm. writing. It just, oh God, this is awful. It's you know, like a school, isn't it? It is. And I hated it <laughs> yeah. at school. Yeah, it really is. This, it's a kind of form of self torture. You know, I've been to writing groups since, and it's half the people there are there for group therapy. <laughs> you know it really is so so the so the the support of tutors through that process was really important and to be pushed and and lucy was really tough with me she you know she really pushed me because obviously she wanted me to to achieve what i could achieve best i could achieve and she related to a lot of the irish stuff so that was a great process to go through now i feel as if i've been you know thrown out of the hot air balloon and i'm floundering and trying to find you know, trying to remember what I learned and typical of, of an, someone with imposter syndrome, I'm reading more books on how to write books than how to, than actually getting on with yeah. having the confidence to just do the bloody thing. So It's like all the courses and material I used to buy, you know, all the self-improvement books yeah. and courses yeah. and you put them on the shelf and you do nothing <laughs> with them, they gather dust and you think one yeah. day, one, one day I'm going to yeah. do something. I'll, one day I'm going to write one. One day I'm going to write something or one day I'll be an entrepreneur, one day I'll set up my <laughs> yes. business or yeah. one, one day and then you yeah. go, go and spend another, you know, shed load of money in another course. You yeah. Think, 
I'm sure that's repeated what I learned five years ago. Exactly, or something. exactly. But I mean, all credit to you for doing it, you know, because obviously it wasn't something that was particularly encouraged in your upbringing, you know, you say from a working class yeah. background as well. And then to get it published as well, mm. because getting things published – you can get the book self-published. That's one thing. We're getting it on a. This is a. Who are the publishers of this? this so is, it's um, One World. One it's World. an imprint of One World. Yeah. Uh-huh. And do they specialise in this type of genre of book or they're, young adult books? They. It's an imprint called Rock the Boat, and the name speaks for itself. Really, they they like to publish challenging. Something a bit edgy. Works. A bit yeah. Different. Yeah. I mean, they prior to that being published, they'd won the Booker Prize twice. Uh-huh. One with both with black men aren't particularly well, you know well represented in um, literary circles and one with a black gay man a Jamaican black gay man I mean it's just not something you hear of very often at all unfortunately and so they do they they like to and both and both quite challenging books as well about race so um, they do like to push the boundaries a little bit which was why they picked that that up was a wonderful book but then there was another book you wrote prior to this wasn't there yeah issues on our in our world terrorism this is obviously a factual Mm -hmm. book uh, written several years prior to Birdie Flynn. Yeah, just after 9-11 that was commissioned. Just after 9-11. So yeah. how, tell me about how this was commissioned and how why you were chosen to write this particular book. Well, at the time, that that just before 9-11 happened, I was working at a charity called the National Asthma Campaign, um, now Asthma UK, campaigning for people with asthma. And one of my roles in that job was to take quite technical medical information and make it palatable and, and accessible for people across the board. So that, that was very much kind of one of my USPs, was converting technical language into uh, accessible language. Um, again, a passion of mine, because I don't see any reason why everything shouldn't be understandable to everyone. So that was what I was doing. And again, I left, I went freelance. I was working in Brussels and decided one year in Brussels was enough for me. So I went freelance and focused on that writing, copywriting, which I, I still do. And a former colleague of mine went into the publishing world. They wanted a book after 9-11 for um, young children, young people, um, that explained why some human beings blow up other human beings, to put it bluntly. Yeah. Um, and she thought of me because that's, it was, it, essentially it's about taking quite technical information, quite complex issues and bringing it alive and making it understandable for a young people. Yeah, well, there's nothing straightforward about terrorism and the roots of terrorism and what is defined as terrorism. Yeah, one person's freedom fighter. Exactly. So presumably there was a lot of, uh, you had to do quite a lot of research on this from all the different groups you've you've spoken about, religious terrorism. Yeah, and this is pre-internet. This is pre- Of course. um, Well, the the internet had been invented. I was saying, there must have been internet. There was internet, but it wasn't like now. You know, it wasn't kind of the... the, the, Everything's Googled now. Yeah. This was published in 2007, so I suppose it was written, what, the year leading up to that? That's the second edition. Oh, right. Yeah, the first one was, I think, was just after, about a year after 9-11. Yeah, so it involved a lot of research, a lot of sitting on the tube with books about terrorism, which was odd. You know, in the <laughs> yeah. in the light of yeah, having the world being be, yeah. yeah, the world being really shaken up, and I'm sitting there reading how to be a terrorist. Book of Bin Laden sitting there on the train, the underground yeah. would have gone down a treat. Yeah, and there wasn't actually this again ten years ago. There wasn't as much material about it. It wasn't something that was analysed in the way it is now. You know, in, the, in trying to understand the psyche of, mm. of of terrorism, it was it was very much a kind of historical, uh, political, factual kind of stuff. And again, so, this was aimed at young adult audience. It's, it's it's yeah, it's aimed at year six upwards. So year six is ten, eleven year olds. Mm. And again, I had interesting editorial discussions around what to include. I remember one particular detail about the dirty bomb. So I can't remember if it's if it's kept in, but I remember reading that um, somebody could plant a, a suitcase with a dirty bomb inside it in Trafalgar Square, and it would destroy London in seconds. Chemical bomb, essentially. And I thought, I can't, but that would scare the life out of a ten-year-old. And they and they were like, No, no, this needs. They need and that's to. That's in here, is well, it? I'm sure it got kept oh, in yeah. a form. I'm sure it got kept yeah. in because they said there's no. This is a scary subject, and the whole point of the book is to be honest. And I think that's what I've learned a lot. Actually, you have to be honest with young readers. You don't. You know, don't patronise them. No, absolutely. Uh, I confess, I haven't. I flicked through that. I haven't yeah. read that cover to cover. My main interest was to read Birdie yeah, yeah. Flynn, but I mean that. And this t- this book called Terrorism. I mean, it's you know the picture of huge explosion on the front. Yeah. Did, did this find its way into school libraries? Yeah, yeah primarily is where yeah. where it's intended. Yeah, exactly. And I was given a fixed fee to write that, and but I do every year. There's a thing called the public lending rights, which is one of the the drip drip feeds that authors get, and but it. 
it's pittance. I mean, it's not like... It's a royalty, I guess. It's kind of like royalty. Basically, it's every time someone borrows it from a library, you get 2p or something. Right, you know? okay. But it does, it's a good measure of it still being borrowed. Okay. You know, and it's still being, still yeah, there, still being yeah, taken out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, why not? I mean, it's a, it's a succinct, colourful, pictorial, but, yeah. you know, factual... Well, it's an inter- actually, there's an interesting angle to that. I, at the time of writing that, I, as I say, I was freelance, and um, I was considering career paths and I went to a career coach a like kind of life coach career coach type person just in up in um, Muswell Hill and uh, this had been published and I was thinking what next and in discussions with her it transpired that her husband had been killed in one of the twin towers Crikey. she was pregnant at the time and it's one of these things that's odd it's just it just happens in life and so our our coaching became more about that um, and Cut long story short, eventually I gave her the book for her son because one of her fears was that she'd have to try and explain how his dad died um, while she was still pregnant with him. So you know? she found that useful in her own personal circumstances, yeah, which is that she didn't know the book existed. Quite bizarre. Um, and yeah. And then there's another book that you um, contributed to, mm. um, which is uh, edited, I suppose, authored by Conrad Gamble, who mm-hmm. who I have interviewed as a guest on the podcast, um, who will appear. Uh, in a couple of weeks' time. But you, his book is called For the Love of London, and he's yeah. got together about 100 people who live and love London yeah. town, as we do, and that's one of the, the purposes and raison d'etre of your London legacy. And you you appear in here, but it, it, I think you've written a piece here is more of a, a is it, would you call it a poem, a prose? More? I guess it's, it's, yeah, it's more prosy than the, some of the other. I mean, he gave us very much a kind of open invite to yes. write what we felt was right. But it's about your views and your, your love of London and what you think yeah, feel well, about the place. Because it says that for the love of London, I wrote that as in a similar way you'd write about an affair hmm. or a love, a love affair, yes. you know, a relationship, if you like. Uh-huh. It's about a relationship with London and the phases you go through in a relationship, the highs and lows and the experiences. And, and that's very much for me is the London journey. You know, when you arrive in London you haven't got a clue, you know, because I didn't grow up in London. I came to London when I was 22. Um, having lived in Manchester for many years, which gave me a kind of introduction to what a city's like, but, <laughs> oh dear, you know, nothing can prepare you for really understanding London. And I don't think you ever do. You know, it's such a no. vast metropolis, but it gives you the most amazing experiences and it gives you, as I say in there, I can't really remember it word for word, but it gives you the contrasts, the kind of the, the, wide open spaces and the tiny cobbled streets and the you know the, the violence and yet the the compassion and full of contradictions but full yeah. of it's um, exactly all the reasons experience. why I, I you know i love london why yeah. i'm doing this actually um because it's huge contradictions and it's cultural diversity yeah. and just yeah. anything and everything well, goes it's a miracle and, every day i think london i that's the way i describe it to my girls is london performs a miracle every day i can't bear it when you get people saying oh londoners aren't friendly it's rubbish you know we live we have a, a, such a diversity just people living on top of each other literally and yet we rub along just fine better than fine people from all extremes to to no extreme to you know and and we managed to you know get in a queue at the Sainsbury's in Stamford Hill you could be behind you know orthodox Jewish people who were in front of Muslim people yeah. who are in front of people of no faith or yes. you know something you know it's just so it's all it's very much live and let live I do struggle sometimes with Londoners maybe where I live in our street not necessarily being overtly friendly I mean we're friendly with lots of people in the street yeah and over the years, we put on street parties. Yeah. But then we have noticed you know, the next day, some people who attended the street party walk past, you won't even, you know, look look you in the eye. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there is a bit of, I don't know whether it's insecurity or whether it's a bit of yeah. coldness. So I think that depends where you are. Because, yes. again, you just, it's absolutely impossible to generalise about Londoners. Of course. You know, if you talk to someone in Liverpool, they'll think of EastEnders. My Scottish cousins think I'm a Cockney. <laughs> um, you know, um, they've obviously never been to East Ham or, or beyond. But um, it really depends. It can it can vary from street to street. So you go, if you go to Islington, you know, I used to work as a student. I lived in Islington. Literally from one street to the next, you've got different communities living in different ways with different levels of wealth, with different jobs and different experiences. And I don't think it's as uh, black or white as working class. It's, London's no. not like that. But I, I know the street I lived on in Finsbury Park, we had on that street... Next door to us was a rehab house for people with drug and alcohol issues. Um, the right-hand side of us was a Trinidadian family. Opposite, half the street was social housing, half the street was million-pound houses. You know, a real diverse mix. Everybody, you know, you wouldn't you'd get people coming in. 
there's transitory, so you've got people coming in, they'd only be they'd rent a flat for a year, then move on. But you had there was a real sense of a of a bond and everyone knew each other um and i don't i just couldn't relate to these stories of people not knowing their neighbors you know the the trinidadian family they made the most amazing food and i love spicy meat and chicken and oh my god it's just wonderful i, I, I can never reciprocate with something dodgy irish kind of <laughs> stew <laughs> it'd <just> be horrific <laughs> so yes so that was my experience and but you get a different experience when you get on the tube or if you go to kensington or you know uh, even up here people are a little bit more aloof no, I love so. I mean, you put here, and so we settled. You gave me greenery, and I gave you flowers. When you gave me a rooftop, I sat and read and pondered and slept and watched you for hours. Mm. I, lo- I love that um, the language and the way, you're, as you say, you're talking about it like a, like it's a reciprocal mm. arrangement you've yeah. got going on here with London. Yeah, and it's wonderful. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful book, and I I recommend anyone gets that book, yeah, uh, Conrad Gamble for the Love of London, because as I say, there's a hundred or so. I think more than a hundred different personalities you will know and that you won't know some of them are, are, are very famous from Stephen Fry yeah. to to lesser well known personalities as you know radio presenters and the like it's well worth getting that book and yeah. um look out for uh, Conrad Gamble on a forthcoming edition of uh, the podcast as well so what are your plans going forward then now well um there's two things I need to do I need to earn money of course <laughs> so um I I like to do that through writing as much as possible but you know you as is well publicized writers at the moment do not creative writers do not earn mm. a lot of money so unless you're writing uh, harry potter books uh, unless you are the uh, 0.001 yeah. percent so yes uh create i'm still in the kind of the uh charity world as a freelancer doing and work you know working with different organizations in the in the kind of skill set that I, that I previously had in my career but so that's a, that's paying the mortgage the most important thing is to try and get the second book written do you have ideas in mind? You know, I had start I ten thousand words in in the in the um the can f- for a book about a young lad whose mum disappears because I had a fascination with people who just go missing, who just disappear. And it's it's something again that we don't particularly talk about. It's a kind of fear people have; they don't want to know about it. And I did a lot of research into it. and I found a kind of trajectory that the police use around what they call the mispers, the missing people. And the, the general process that happens when someone goes missing for that person, the, the, the psychological process as much as anything, um, the elation through to the um, contemplating suicide, to the shall I return, to the... Um, and that interested me because it almost formed the, the, the same pattern as a novel, you know, the kind of rising action. And it, so that interested me very much. And I thought, oh, can you, could you write a novel around that process? And then what also interested me is that most people who go missing do not want to be found. So you've got... The people who are left behind, who actually suffer the most, arguably, majority, vast majority of people, unless there's been foul play, do not want to be found. And I just thought, and it's, they call it a living suicide. And I just thought, what, what would drive a person? And in particular, because I like to write about things that aren't written about very often, a mum, you know, and it's almost one of the most profound taboos in our society for a mum to do to abandon her children, to do any harm to her children. So what? Why? Why would she walk out? Why? And she just disappears. And and one um, Saturday afternoon, after f- writing in the library, I went to. Um, I used to nip into a pub in Crouch End on a, after I'd done a day's writing on a Saturday for a kind of wind down pint. And I remember sitting there. It was actually the Weatherspoons that's no longer there. And uh, there was a family, as often happened on a Saturday afternoon, families would go in there for like their tea, you know. And there was a dad and a mum and two two boys, two young boys, and. Um, they were looking at the menu, what were they going to have, what they going to have. And the mum said, oh, I'm just going to, hang on a second, I'm just going to pop out. And I was just, you know, not, e- not eavesdropping, but I just couldn't help but notice. And um, she was gone for ages. The boys were playing up. The dad couldn't, didn't quite know what to do with them. He didn't want to go and get a pint because he didn't want to leave the kids. And it was getting more and more edgy. And the dynamics suddenly changed dramatically. Ho- horrible. And I just kept thinking, where's she gone? What's she didn't take a phone. You know, she just went. Yeah. In the end, she came back. But... Um, and he was, dad had lost the plot. He was, where have you been? Where have you been? He'd obviously well out of his comfort zone. Yes. But I just thought, well, what if she didn't come back? We, we, a very good friend, one of my oldest friends, his, one of his uh, siblings disappeared. Yeah. Just disappeared off the face of the earth. Was found many years later. Really? Was, they, they, I, I won't say too much because yeah. even in this environment, yeah. I, I don't want to sort of, you know, to be um, <laughs> people to know who we're talking about, but no, yeah. definitely was, was found and we, we've seen the person subsequently and had his reasons for yeah. not wanting to be found but was found through a bizarre 
chain of events yeah. but was ultimately found it's a weird thing isn't it just to disappear and not say you're going and never to yeah. be seen again and set up a new life at the other yeah. side of the world which is what this this person apparently did when you start talking about it actually you mm. find that lots of people have you know they'll they'll pull up a story that oh so and so you know um, down the line and one of the interesting things as well from the police perspective is very often now in this day and age people who want to go missing will just leave their phone on the table no communication. Just don't bother phoning. Don't you bother. know. You yeah. know. And that's such a symbolic way of saying, you know, I'm cut yeah. off. Yeah, it's horrible. But yeah. Well, I, I certainly think there's a story, uh, a storyline mm. there. I'm sure you can create uh, some sort of arc of a story yeah. from, from that. Definitely. Yeah. Well, good luck to you with all your future endeavours. It's been a trip. Thank I, you. As, as when I came in, I said I wanted to pick a pick a bone with you because we yeah. both support football teams from oh, the, yeah, other, no, the other. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm glad, leave that to the end. I'm glad I didn't mention that right <laughs> at the beginning because I know you're yeah. a, you're. A, a gooner as well, I aren't am. you? Yeah, yeah I'm afraid I'm. Yeah, I'm from the, the other side of the track. The other side of North, okay. the, seven, the Seven Sisters Road. So, okay. well, whether I should apologise or we shake hands, I'm not yeah, entirely we'll, we'll sure. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what the future lies. Yeah, uh, yeah. What future lies ahead to next season? It should be should be interesting. Anyway, you've signed. At least you've signed a few players. We haven't even signed anybody yet. So, yeah, so new beginnings. You know, it's it's. There's, I mean, there's always hope. This is this is the great thing about football. This time of year, you know, you always think, what's the, what's the? We've got Man City at home. Our first game, yeah. it'll be a real kind you've got of tough game to start. You've got yeah. a new manager. Yeah. We've we've got a new stadium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So second second season running in effect yeah. at a yeah, different stadium, amazing. which which looks amazing. Yeah. But we need one or two players to uh, help. You do you need to bolster the yeah, squad a bit? Bolster don't you? the squad a bit. But that's the trouble when you move into a new stadium. Is the money is kind of. Yeah put on hold for a few years yeah we've, we've spotted that one yeah. but you were a footballer i also read you were a, a, a yeah played at a decent level yeah west ham i played for that must have been hard as well being a gooner playing for west ham yeah i, was, I just had to accept i was never good enough to play for arsenal i yeah it's an interesting experience playing for west ham it's prior to the levels of professionalism that women's football has now although arsenal were pioneering it back then and it's wonderful to see how women's football is developing you know i don't feel jealous of the girls now i feel pleased for them that they've got that my my girls can say they want to be a footballer if they want whereas I was laughed at when I said sure. that um you had to go to America but yes I did for for many for quite a few years but it was a lot of traveling and um I was carving out the early stages of my career um, and I got a lot of injuries I used to play in central midfield and I spent more time in orthopedic wards than right. in anything else so so who are you the Patrick Vieira oh the, my uh, dreams <laughs> my dreams I was once compared to Jack Wilshere. Okay. Well, a young also, Jack Wilshere. You got the and West Ham crossover there. as yeah, well. Yeah, because yeah, he was brought up by West Ham's appointment family. Right. In my dreams. Yeah, I was a kind of tenacious. But I was always told by coaches to come off being hated. <laughs> hated and loved at the same time. <laughs> so I used to love that role. I used to, oh, you know, I used to love strong tackles and yeah, getting your kind of frustrations off your chest. So that's another way you could express yourself and your feelings was on Very the much so, yeah. yeah. And legitimate for a working class kid, you know. Sure. And, and also, you know, Having gone to university, well, I didn't recognise anyone like me and started a career down in London where, again, surrounded by white middle-class kind of clones. Football was the one, going to Arsenal and playing was the one place you were amongst your people. So, Well, I think on that note, yes. <laughs> before we yeah. beg to differ, yeah. okay. <laughs> well, we're part as friends and yeah. it's been a pleasure having thank you. you on the podcast. Thank, thank you, you very much. For, thank you for uh, asking me. It's no, lovely. it's our pleasure. And thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy day. And I hope that your new book project is as successful as your yeah, previous one, you know. and, and Birdie yeah. Flynn. And when it's yeah. published, let us know and we'll um, get you back on the podcast. Yes, brilliant. Lovely yeah. to have you. All Thank right. you very much, Helen. Thanks, Steve. Cheers.